Today on Ag News Daily. Our members spend about $50 per night uh, with the hosts that they visit, buying whatever you know products they offer. Um, they have wonderful experiences, you know, getting to know the hosts and learning about the lifestyle. Good afternoon, ladies and gentlemen. Happy, what is today, Ashton? Thursday, I guess, on the Ag News Daily Podcast. Delaney Howell joined by Ashton Carr. I'm all out of wax today, Ashton. Hey, I was all out of whack yesterday. Couldn't remember my days yesterday, but I remember what today is just because I've been working on the newsletter for the Global Ag Network. So folks, if you're not already signed up or subscribed to our newsletter, you should probably consider doing so because we share the latest network news. We certainly do. And we also share the latest news in general here on the podcast. And Ashton, let's go ahead and kick things off for today. I know you've got some new COVID stimulus package related news. I certainly do, Delaney. The House Ag Committee has voted in favor of the food and nutrition title included in the proposed $1.9 trillion pandemic relief package. The legislation includes just over $16 billion in support for farmers, rural communities, and food insecure Americans. During the markup, Representative Cherry Bustos of Illinois pledged her support for the passage and was quoted as saying, this coronavirus relief legislation will deliver desperately needed relief to our growers and producers, while also providing food security to the one in five children in our nation who are experiencing hunger as a result of the pandemic. Bustos highlights portions of the bill directly benefiting farmers and food workers, saying there is nearly $4 billion in agricultural assistance in this bill, including commodity purchases, will give farmers relief from market disruptions and uncertainty, while also providing funding for small and mid-sized meat and poultry processors to protect workers with PPE and social distancing. The title also includes a 15% boost in SNAP benefits through September. They distribute COVID-19 vaccines in rural healthcare workers and provide farm loan assistance to socially disadvantaged farmers. Absolutely. I'm glad you brought that piece of news up, Ashton, because it seems that we are moving right along to see a new stimulus package put into place. But you mentioned earlier meat production. And although they may or may not get direct aid, we don't know yet really the fine-tuned details of that stimulus package. It's got a lot of hoops to jump through first before we get to that point. Uh, We do know that there could be some support for U.S. beef production here in Q1 and Q2 because we saw Brazilian meatpackers slaughter, total slaughter, I should say, for fourth quarter was down pretty substantially here in 2020. It fell about 10.3% compared to 2019. So compared to 2019, we saw beef slaughter in Brazil drop about 10.3% for the fourth quarter. And this was the lowest number for a quarter since 2012, when we saw the slaughter at about 7.22 million head. Again, I say this is supportive or at least somewhat friendly for U.S. beef because we are still chugging right along when you look at uh, the number of 
head we have on feed, as well as the number of cattle hitting the pipeline. We're continuing to, quote unquote, chew through that supply. Uh, but Brazil certainly is, has not been able to keep up with the supply and demand issues that they're having down there. And this could create a little bit of a discrepancy in the global marketplace. So definitely something to keep an eye on here. Maybe a good one to follow up on for a Market Monday future episode. But thought that was pretty interesting, to say the least. Delaney, there's so many 20s when we're talking about the years 2012, 2020, 2021. It just kind of boggles my mind a little bit. It's hard to keep up. But one thing that is also a little bit hard to keep up with is the United States relationship with China. It's been a little confusing for the past, I don't know, maybe few weeks. But U.S. President Joe Biden and his Chinese counterpart, Xi Jinping, held their first telephone call as leaders with Biden saying a free and open Indo-Pacific was a priority and Jing warning confrontation would be a, quote, disaster for both nations. Biden also underscored his, quote, fundamental concerns about Beijing's coercive and unfair practices, its crackdown in Hong Kong, reported human rights abuses in Xinjiang, and increasing assertive actions in the region, including toward Taiwan. Coming from a statement provided by the White House, Jing also told Biden that confrontation would be a disaster and the two sides should reestablish the means to avoid misjudgments, according to the Chinese Foreign Ministry's account of the call, which took place on Thursday morning in Beijing time, but Wednesday evening here in the U.S., And this is the first telephone call between Jing and a U.S. president since they spoke to former President Donald Trump in March of last year. And relationships with the Trump administration in China were a little bit tense, um, particularly with Trump citing China as the cause for COVID-19. But hopefully with this new administration in place and this phone call between the U.S. and China, things start to kind of pick up from here on out. Yeah, I'm glad you mentioned that, Ash, and I hadn't seen that news come to the wire. But adding on to that news was a recent analysis done by the American Farm Bureau Federation looking at the quote unquote missed purchases that China made or didn't make really in this case under the phase one trade agreement. So I'm hoping they and I'm assuming they likely talked about that during this call. But American Farm Bureau calculates that China's total ag purchases were some $27.2 billion last year, well short of the $36.5 billion goal that they set under the Phase 1 trade agreement. Farm Bureau calculates that that commitment was about $33.4 billion when factoring in the cost of shipment and freight, but total we need to see China get to about $73 billion in ag products to be able to hit their goal. So they said about 69% uh, increase in exports over 2020 is what we would have to see for 2021. And that's going to be really hard to have happen. So I'm sure we're going to see, or I hope we're going to see some sort of news that comes out of that conversation, Ashton, and gives us some clarity about how this new administration is going to handle continued relations with China. 
Absolutely, Delaney. And in the same vein, talking about trade, the U.S. International Trade Commission ruled earlier today that blueberry imports are not causing serious injury to domestic producers and will not recommend further action to reduce foreign supplies. And for quite some time now, I can't remember when, you know, this story or this this piece of news kind of first hit the the wires, but blueberry producers here in the U.S. were a bit concerned with the imports of blueberries. Right now, kind of specifically talking about Mexico, although we have seen an increased import of blueberries from Chile and Peru, but in a statement following the decision, the Mexican government praised the ruling, adding that its blueberry exports complement U.S. production and provide a benefit to consumers with year-round supply. So I'm sure Mexico is in favor of this ruling. I mean, they, you know, were praising this ruling in a statement earlier today, but I'm not so sure that U.S. producers are going to be feeling the same way. I have yet to see, you know, any word from those producers or that industry, but I would not be opposed to hearing about how they feel about this ruling. And I, I just think that it's quite interesting that the International Trade Commission ruled basically kind of in favor of those imports. Yeah, it certainly sounds like that is the case, Ashton. Uh, but switching tracks here just a little bit, I'm going to take us back over to southeastern Asia to Hong Kong. I reported, I believe, two days ago on the podcast that Hong Kong has culled quite a few hogs so far due to African swine fever. Well, they've been forced to cull another 590 hogs after more animals tested positive on February 6th. And so now we are continuing to see the virus depopulate more of Hong Kong's hog herd. The Hong Kong government has assured farmers and the public that they've stepped up surveillance on all hog farms in Hong Kong and have encouraged farmers to report any abnormalities concerning the health of their hogs. Sounds like they're really trying to contain this situation, but we'll continue to watch it because it could indeed continue to impact the swine industry. And, you know, Ashton, to add on to that, I was reading a few reports today that uh, suggest, I I should say China suggests that they are pretty much back at 100% capacity as far as hog production goes. There are some differing reports from other analysts and folks maybe privy to some information about China, but uh, I I think we're always hesitant when we talk about Chinese news, especially news that they've put out about themselves, because they definitely censor and filter things to make it maybe not always quite the full truth. Yeah, to be honest, Delaney, there's kind of some speculation, I think, under that claim. I don't know if I quite believe that they're back at 100% just yet. No, I think that maybe we're not quite there, but uh, I don't have a good opinion about that. And I don't know who really would at this point, but something we can do a little digging into. That's for sure. I'll have to, you know, put on my my Nancy Drew outfit and see if I can figure some things out. Absolutely. I used to read the Nancy Drew books. I'm all about that, Ashton. (laughs) Well, Delaney, I don't have any other news to cover for today, but hopefully we can get some answers to that bit of Chinese news there. Other than that, do you want to hop over to the markets? 
They certainly do, because we did see some recovery after yesterday's hefty losses. Really, we had kind of two days this week that bit the markets hard, but we were able to recover quite a bit of those today, which was very supportive for the markets. And really, I think, as I mentioned before on the podcast, the big factor that pushed markets lower over the past couple of days was the WASI report, not quite what people expected, but also South American weather. And the market seemed to at least process that news and chew through it for the time being to finish higher for the day. Kicking things off here in the March corn contract up six and a half cents to close at 541. The May up seven to close at 539 and three quarters. In the soybean pits, the March contract up 13 and a half cents to close at 13.67 and a half. The May up 14 and a quarter to close at 13.66 and three quarters. In the wheat pit, slight pullbacks today as the March contract shed two cents to close at 6.33 and a half. The May down two to close at 6.39 on the nose. And in livestock, the April live cattle contract up 42 and a half cents today to close at 123.12. The June up 40 to close at 119.52 and a half. Feeder cattle were mixed today as the March contract shed 35 cents to close at 139.15. April down 12 cents to close at 143.37 and a half. But looking out further into the spring and summer months, we did see some strength in the feeder cattle markets. Now looking over at the lean hog markets, strength here as well as the April contract added $2.42.5 to close at $84.25. The May up $1.47.5 to close at $86.37. And rounding out our markets with the Class 3 Dairy Milk Futures. March up three quarters today to close at $17.03. The April up $75 as well to close at $17.54. Ashton, without further ado, fill us in on who we're chatting with for today's interview. Today, we are talking to the CEO of Harvest Hosts, Joel Holland. For today's conversation, we are talking to Joel Holland, who is the CEO of Harvest Hosts. Joel, thank you so much for coming on the podcast to chat today. Yeah, thank you so much for having me. So before we get started talking about agritourism and a little bit more about Harvest Hosts, why don't you tell us a little bit more about you and your background and how you got involved with Harvest Hosts? Yeah, you bet. So uh, originally I'm from the Washington, D.C. area where I had um, built a, a video technology company and had a lot of fun doing that, uh, but ultimately kind of burned out, uh, just burned out on the cubicle lifestyle, being in the city. And my wife and I kind of on a whim, uh, bought, bought an RV and hit the road. And our, and our concept was like, let's do this till we get bored. Uh, but there's so many cool places in the country we haven't seen. This might be a nice way to do it. And we, we took off thinking it might be just a few months. And ultimately, over the course of a couple of years, traveled through all the lower 48 uh, states and completely fell in love with the RV lifestyle, with the community. And with that, you know, the fact that we could see all these incredible parts of the country that we typically flew over. One of the things that we, we kind of noticed as we were driving around was all this incredible farmland and these wineries and breweries and distilleries that were gorgeous locations, um, but kind of inaccessible to RVers, or at least not, you know, not readily accessible to just go and stay. And so I had what I thought was a novel idea. I'm like, well, wouldn't it be nice to, you know, stay the night at one of these farms and in return purchase the produce and support the, you know, support the farmers. Um, maybe this could be a whole company. 
turned out there was a company called Harvest Hosts doing just that. Um, and it was a kind of a small um, husband wife team out of uh, Prescott, Arizona, had built this concept where our viewers pay a membership fee and then they could stay overnight at hundreds of locations around the country. And so I, I just, you know, I loved it so much. We joined, we used the program. Uh, in fact, the first, our first experience in Harvest Hosts was staying at an alpaca farm in Kansas uh, that was run by three nuns in their 80s. And it was just a phenomenal experience. Right? Like you pull off the highway, you're driving down this dirt road like you're in Twister, and all of a sudden you're at this gorgeous farm with thousands of acres, park anywhere you want, and and then each nun did, you know, sold a different good. One made alpaca scarves, one made soaps, and one gave massages. So we per- we partook in all of them, and and it was just we left with this experience of like, whoa, this is cool. More people need to know about this, and so we ended up you know reaching out to the owners of the company, making an offer, um, and buying buying the company in 2018, and it's been just a wonderful ride since. We've we've grown from 600 locations then to now over 1,900 um, farms, wineries, breweries, etc., all over the country, and in Canada, and. Um, yeah, we're having a lot of fun with it, but but that this is where our, our love for agritourism has only grown every year. Joel, this sounds like a movie. You know, you're saying that this this alpaca farm in Kansas of all places, owned by three nuns, like that just it, it sounds like you made it up, to be completely honest. But it's I know. It's so fascinating and definitely a unique part of agritourism because, you know, typically when I think of agritourism, I think of, you know, going out to a farm for a day and picking apples or, you know, riding around on a horse to get a better view of the ranch, stuff like that. Definitely not, you know, staying there in an RV. It's it's very fascinating what Harvest Hosts is doing. So why don't you talk to us a little bit more about the membership side, maybe a little bit more about the costs and, you know, the package that comes with a membership. Totally. Yeah. So, so it's a very, um, it's a no brainer program, in my opinion, for an RVer. If, if you own an RV, even if you rent an RV, um, you pay $79 a year, which gets you unlimited access to stay as many times as you want at all of these, you know, almost 2000 locations and there are no additional fees. And so when you go and stay at, you know, stay at a farm, uh, you don't pay a camping fee, but you do um, support the local business. And that's an important part of the program. And so what we say to our members is, you know, t- take some of the money you're saving on a campground, which is typically like $50 a night and spend it with your hosts. And when we look at the data, that's exactly what they do. Our members spend about $50 per night uh, with the hosts that they visit, buying whatever you know products they offer. Um, they have wonderful experiences, you know, getting to know the hosts and learning about the lifestyle. Um, and this year, by our estimates, our members are going to spend over thirty million dollars with the hosts that they visit, and that equates to an average of around thirteen thousand dollars a host. But we have some hosts who are who are making an additional forty thousand dollars a year in revenue directly from our members, which you know, it's a big deal, especially in COVID times when, when some of our businesses and our hosts are really struggling. Um, so as an RVer, the membership, it's, it's very inexpensive, $79 a year. It's a wonderful community. Um, as a host, we charge nothing. So if you have a farm uh, or, or, or a winery, brewery, distillery, golf course, museum, anything that 
you know, you sell a product and have a place for RVers to park, uh, we, we would love for you to join our program because we, we won't charge you anything, never will charge you anything. We simply introduce you to our members. Uh, we have over 130,000 members and they start visiting. And so we think it's a great program for, for everyone involved. It, it certainly sounds that way, Joel. And I'm glad that you brought up COVID-19 because it has disrupted so many different aspects of not only just, you know, the, the regular everyday life of, of people, but agritourism, it's disrupted on on every level imaginable. So how has COVID-19 affected the way that you guys operate and have you seen, you know, a decrease or an, an increase in membership or participation? Yeah. So at first, like most businesses, I think, you know, last March, everything came to a grinding halt, right? When COVID-19 started, you know, coming out in the media, everyone was scared and no one knew how it was going to play out. And we saw that with our membership, our website traffic, usage, everything dropped about 80%. And it was horrifying. Um, what we quickly realized was that RVing was going to be the safe way to travel as things came back. And and we, we, we kind of anticipated that and got in front of it. We created some big ad campaigns uh, around RVing be the way, being the way to travel safely, scenically, and supportive of small business. Um, and we really, and we, and we, we doubled down. We spent millions of dollars on Facebook specifically promoting this ad campaign and it worked. Our, our business ended up doubling um, the whole business. I mean, things have been around 10 years, whole, the whole business doubled from March until December, really made it to de- until December. And it's because road travel is the safe way to get out uh, and see the country and people need to travel. Like they need it to feel human. So, I think we're going to continue seeing that trend this year. Uh, we did a survey to 10,000 RV owners and 76% of them said they're going to travel more this year than last year, which is no surprise. Um, but 60% of them said they're going to travel more this year than pre-COVID in 2019. And I think that's a big deal. And and we're so I think what we're going to see is continued road travel and hopefully continued support of agritourism um, and the businesses that support road travel. And, you know, we'd love to continue being a part of that. Absolutely, Joel. And I myself would love to get back out and and travel. But unfortunately, I'm a college student, so I don't always get that luxury. But hopefully one day I can, you know, buy myself an RV because, you know, RV life, van life, whatever you want to call it, has definitely been increasing in the past few years. I see the followings on social media all the time. But out of those folks who have have joined, I mean, you're saying that you've had this large increase in membership. What are you hearing back from those members about, you know, what they're learning more about the agriculture industry once they go and visit these small farms, wineries, breweries, ranches, wherever they are um, going and visiting? Yes, I mean, so I think you kind of nailed it. What our members love are the experiences and really the unique experiences that they get traveling to our hosts. And, and it's really learning how other people live, right? Like learning how alpaca farmers live, learning how a lavender farmer lives, um, learning. I went last year, I went to an underground salt museum and learned how salt mining works. You know, there's just a, a lot of really interesting lifestyles that 
are not really in mainstream media, and it's an awesome way to, to learn about them. Um, in fact, what's really cool, when we survey our hosts and ask them why they enjoy being a part of Harvest Hosts, I assumed the first answer would be because it helps us make more money, right? Like that's the, that would be my assumption. What actually happened was they said, we love meeting new people and sharing our way of life with them. And I thought that was really touching, right? Like just really cool. And, you know, as one specific example, we live here in Colorado. I pulled up our map of, of Colorado farms. There's one called Pawnee Creek Farms in Atwood, Colorado. And it's a fifth generation family farm. And this fifth generation is really excited about sharing it and, and, and continuing to like support their lifestyle, but help people under, understand how it works. Um, I think that's the experience. So, so our, our members come away learning a lot more about farming and, and, and agritourism and, and having a whole new appreciation for it, which is wonderful. Joel, I'm going to take things a little bit personal here because I want to know what your favorite visit has been. I mean, you guys have almost 2,000 locations that you're working with, and I imagine you have been to quite a few of them. So what's been your favorite experience so far? <laughs> yeah, so I started strong with that visit uh, to to the uh, alpaca farm run by nuns. I mean, that was just, that's an experience that I talk about all the time and will never forget. Um Getting a massage from a nun is remarkable in general, but she was also a phenomenal masseuse, and it was just an overall incredible experience. Um, another one of my favorites, I love New England in fall, and we are, um, Mount Washington Cog Railway is one of our hosts, and so they're there in New Hampshire, and you literally look, you can park in the parking lot and watch the world's oldest cog railway built in the 1800s go up Mount Washington. And this thing at certain points, it's on almost a 45 degree angle and it's still coal powered and it's just wild. And so that, that to me is just an awesome experience because you get to see how things were done back in the 1800s. You get to see trains. Everyone loves trains. You're in New Hampshire. Um, I love it. So, so I'd say that was, that's my other favorite. Well, Joel, it's, been certainly interesting to hear about Harvest Hosts, and I'm excited for what the future holds. But with that being said, where do you see the future of Harvest Hosts going in the next coming years and hopefully post-pandemic? We would like to see the program continue to grow, uh, but both with members, because we want more people to experience this lifestyle, uh, but also with host locations. You know, my goal this year is to add over 1,000 new host locations. And that's kind of the, you know, I mean, that's the spirit of our program. So we need new farms. We need new wineries and breweries. Like if you run a business and you have place, you know, a spot for an RVer to park um, and you're willing to let them spend the night, you don't need any hookups. Like they're self, all of our members are self-contained. They arrive in their RV. They experience your products and they leave, right? It's like, it's like the, the, the camping adage, you know, uh, take only photos, leave only footprints. That's how our members operate. So if you're listening to this and you have a property that you think would fit in the program, we would absolutely love to have you. And you can find more information on our website, harvesthost.com and click on the link that says for hosts. It'll tell you all about what it's like to be a host. You can watch um, some testimonials from, from some of our hosts, and then you can complete a short form to join the program. 
Well, again, folks, that was harvesthosts.com. Whether you are interested in being a member or a host, I highly suggest going on their website and looking. I myself have been looking at their map. And when I say there's almost 2,000, I mean, this map is just really intriguing. But Joel, thank you again so much for coming on the podcast today and talking to us about Harvest Hosts. I really appreciate it. My pleasure. Thanks for having me. Thanks again there to Joel for coming on and talking to us about Harvest Hosts. I definitely think it's a very interesting company business. I don't know what you want to call it, but you know, if I had my own RV, I would be going to some of these destinations. I was looking at the map and they have some stuff around me. So I might have to just look into that a little bit further. Yeah, certainly a cool story, Ashton, that's for sure. Well, Delaney, we are always sharing cool stories, whether it's in the news or the folks that we talk to here on the Ag News Daily podcast, in which our listeners can tune in on our website at agnewsdaily.com and follow along with all the stories that we share on social media at Ag News Daily. With that, Delaney, should we let the people go? Let's let them go.